Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Candace, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop. Today's program is titled Participating in Decisions About Your Care, and this is part four of a five-part series of Life with Cancer, A Guide to Getting the Best Care. Now, um, today's program is actually, um, is at, we have many collaborating organizations on this program today, and um, I think many of you have been very interested in this topic, this entire series. And so um, we have on the call today um, over 602 participants, and you come from all over the United States. And we also have some all different parts of the United States, different um, regions and locations and different sized cities and um, in the urban and rural and suburban areas um, and frontier communities as well. And we also have international participants from Canada and the United Kingdom, so a bit of a global call as well. Um, and um, today's program is supported by AbbVie, uh, Bristol Myers Squibb, the Celgene Corporation, Decatur Oncology, an educational donation provided by Amgen, and a grant from Genentech. And I really want to thank them all for their support, not only of today's workshop, but of this entire five-part series. Now, we have a wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. And Dr. Fleischman is founding director, Cancer Support Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, which is part of Mount Sinai Health System, Accreditation Surveyor, American College of Surgeons, Commission on Cancer. And Dr. Fleischman is going to address selecting a cancer care team and treatment facility, what to do when presented with multiple treatment options, getting copies of your medical reports to review with your team, and when and how to seek a second opinion. It's my pleasure now to present Dr. Fleischman. Well, thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you to Cancer Care for having such an innovative um, teleconference. This is a, quite a complicated situation, and we'd like to provide as much practical help as possible. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about how you find your treatment team and the facility and how you go about getting a second opinion. Um, in the old days, we used to rely on our family doctor to be able to send us to a doctor or a cancer center or a facility that he or she trusted. But these days, it's not quite as simple as it used to be. Um, often, the insurance that we have, be that private insurance or through Medicare or uh, some uh, Medicaid programs, um, actually have a network of providers and facilities where we can go with a um, lower copay or deductible or perhaps even no copay or deductible. Um, so uh, we really would rely first on our primary care provider, our family doctor, our internist, our general practitioner, our nurse practitioner, to be able to recommend a facility that they know and trust 
or that is within uh, the network on our insurance. They may not be aware of what's in our network, and often that means calling the customer care number printed on the back of the insurance card and uh, verifying who in your area is um, in the plan, what the copay is, and what the deductibles are. Um, for people who are new to an area and aren't sure where to turn, many people often call the American Cancer Society. And the American Cancer Society partners with the American College of Surgeons Commission on Cancer, and they actually uh, are the people who accredit cancer centers across the country. There are about 1,500 accredited programs in the 50 states of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. And accreditation uh, stands for something very significant in that uh, programs that are accredited actually have to audit themselves, audit their records, audit the uh, treatment uh, that they provide to patients, in, as well as provide a whole bunch of other services, uh, such as um, prevention and screening services, educational services, and uh, the other services that are really necessary for the comprehensive care of cancer, including um, genetics to look at the heritable aspects of cancer, nutrition, um, rehab uh, uh, rehab programs and, and things like that. So it really looks at the cancer patient and their family in a much more comprehensive way. Um, it would be uh, great if the, num the name or of the facility or the name of the doctors to use match what's in your plan. So if the primary care provider matches what's in your insurance plan, that's certainly the first place to go. The important thing, uh, in addition about certified centers, is that the majority of cases of, of patients, their situation, what type of cancer they have, any other illnesses they have, are presented um, in front of an interdisciplinary cancer conference. These used to be called tumor boards, but at this conference, the group of experts decides not only what treatment is best, but in what order that treatment needs to be provided. That's important because um, it used to be that uh, some patients would get the type of treatment, let's say surgery, chemotherapy, or radiation therapy, um, uh, that the doctor who they presented to at first would give. But these days, things are a lot more refined. And sometimes the um, surgery is not always the first thing offered. Sometimes it is chemotherapy, radiation therapy. Sometimes people are uh, eligible for a clinical trial where they can get an innovative treatment or some of their care at no cost. Um, and sometimes even the biopsy uh, that's taken from the initial um, diagnostic testing needs to be done in a certain way for the clinical trial. So it's a good idea that these discussions happen prospectively in advance so that um, patients and families have a good idea about what the most up-to-date and um, way to treat the cancer is that in a way that's both evidence-based based on what's in the literature as well as in the experience of experts. Sometimes uh, we get conflicting information and um, a second opinion may often be necessary. Some people in the cancer world think that everybody should get a second opinion for their cancer because it's such an important treatment decision that people would like to know that they're doing the right thing in the right order at the right time. Um, in, in general, that, that may be, good, that may be uh, good advice. It depends upon where you are, what's available in your area, and in addition, what your insurance company 
will allow for a copay or a deductible for someone who is outside of the network if that second opinion is outside the network. It is very rare that someone needs to actually go to a third opinion doctor to settle between the first two. Uh, but that can happen in, in rare circumstances. The important thing is that you try to get to a center and physicians and a treatment team that treats your kind of cancer at your stage often. Um, and it seems that uh, the best results come when um, patients get treated by a treatment team who's very experienced in their kind of cancer. And uh, there are centers of excellence across the country in different types of cancers. Um, people sometimes ask about reviewing their records, and certainly that is possible under the federal HIPAA guidelines, the Privacy uh, and Confidentiality Act that uh, covers the whole nation. Um, somebody at your center, a, a qualified person, sometimes a physician, sometimes a nurse, sometimes a patient navigator, but in each place there is at least one qualified person who would be able to sit with you and explain um, in a reasonable amount of time the kinds of things that all of us who are not trained in cancer treatment uh, may not understand from just reading the records. Um, and sometimes if you need copies of um, of records that there can be a charge for that. Um, it, it used to vary, the, the laws used to vary between states, but now that's um, really much more uniform and since the federal uh, privacy and confidentiality laws have been, um, ha have been affecting what happens in each of the cancer centers across the country. So in general, best way to start is with the primary care provider, with your insurance company, uh, calling or accessing online the American College of Surgeons Commission on Cancer or the American Cancer Society, which is the same database, and then uh, making sure that the place and the people who you're referred to to treat your cancer are very experienced in the kind of cancer you have and the kind of treatment you'll be provided and that your uh, situation is discussed beforehand so that not only can the right treatment be provided, but it can be done in the right order that is based both on the opinion of experts as well as what's been published in the literature. Um, this is a, a very short explanation for a rather complicated process, but I believe that the next speakers will touch on some more of the details, so I'll turn this back over to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was really superb. Just a wonderful introduction to the entire call, setting the stage for it, and covering some really essential areas. And I know there'll be lots of questions during the Q&A as well. So thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Lydia Shapira. Dr. Shapira is Associate Professor of Medicine, Stanford School of Medicine, Director Cancer Survivorship Program, Stanford Cancer Institute. Um, and Dr. Shapira is going to address your relationship with your healthcare team, understanding your treatment choices and follow-up care plan, how to anticipate, prevent, and manage treatment side effects, and your survivorship care plan. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Shapira. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. It's such a pleasure to be with all of you today. So let me go on and, and carry um, over from where Dr. Fleischman left off and uh, make it a bit more personal. The first topic that uh, I'm addressing is your relationship with your health 
healthcare team. So the U is there prominently in the title. And I would say from my perspective as a medical oncologist with uh, decades of experience treating patients and families is that the best we can hope for is that that relationship is collaborative, that the relationship is built and based on trust, that it's respectful, and that there's a sense of shared goals and shared purpose. It's very important that there be clear pathways for communication. And what looks great to one person may not satisfy the needs of another patient and family. So it's very important to start to think about what each one of us or each one of you really needs out of this relationship. This is a relationship that should um, should be made to last, even if there are disappointments, even if there are problems along the way. And the relationship is not just a relationship between patient and a physician, but it really is patient and family caregivers with a healthcare team. Increasingly, these teams are more complex. There are doctors and nurses and therapists and social workers and financial counselors and nurses and oncology nurses. There may be many members of that healthcare team representing many disciplines and representing many specialties. So when I talk about a respectful relationship, what I mean is that Everybody needs to respect everybody else's point of view. And we've often said and teach our medical students really that patients are experts in their life. Patients are experts in what they need and what their worldview is. So you want to be with a team of healthcare professionals who are great at what they do, but who really take you seriously and see you as the person that you are. You're not just a disease, but you're somebody who has dreams and aspirations and goals, and what may work for you or may be great for you may not be so great for somebody else. So it's important to be an active participant as you build that relationship or those relationships. I also think it's important to have clear pathways for communication so that you as the patient, if you are the patient, know who you should be calling for what. There may be symptoms that need to be explored. There may be questions about insurance. There may be questions about canceling or rescheduling an appointment because of a blizzard. And it's important to know who to call for what. Paging the doctor to change the appointment may not really uh, be the most productive approach. And calling the uh, call center to discuss something that is really a a very important symptom or terrible pain is also going to be frustrating. So understanding how the healthcare team works and operates is important. And that brings us also to understanding what choices you may have for treatment and understanding how the follow-up care will be delivered. It may take more than one consultation to really understand treatment choices, and those depend on the diagnosis. It depends on the expertise that is available, where you are consulting, and depends also on your stated goals. I always say that it's important to make sure that you really understand what each option for treatment entails, and that you talk about many different options for treatment. There may be a good standard option for treating a certain cancer, but for others, maybe um, it's important also to consider getting treatment on a research protocol or a clinical trial. 
in some instances, perhaps no treatment, observation, or managing symptoms is just as good, and that also needs to be discussed. So these conversations and these consultations are quite complex and depend very much on situation, on the type of cancer, and perhaps also on the expectation of benefit from every different path taken. It's important to bring a partner, somebody who can take notes, somebody who can ask questions. When more than one person is in the room, actually more information gets exchanged, and that may also be very important. One of the things I wish we had and could offer patients on a more regular basis is the opportunity actually to debrief from some of these consultations with somebody who is knowledgeable, perhaps a social worker, perhaps a nurse, somebody who could then take the conversation to another deeper level. So think about how much information you need and also think about the process as you are going around collecting um, opinions or collecting uh, recommendations for treatment and then assemble a care team that um, meets your needs but also make sure that you have family supporters or friends or somebody who can help you perhaps make important choices. Dr. Fleischman also alluded to the setup for receiving cancer care, and it may look very different in a community practice or in a research-oriented cancer center. So choosing the right um, institution or the right practice may also be very important. It's important to have knowledge, to be well-informed. That may help you anticipate and even prevent some of the common problems or side effects associated with cancer treatments. So, of course, we always prefer to prevent problems. And one of the ways that we could think about that for cancer treatment is to be informed of the anticipated or known side effects of a treatment and then to have also a direct channel of communication with a member of the healthcare team. It could be a nurse, a nurse practitioner, somebody that you can discuss these things with and not let them build up. At the recent um, ASCO meeting this past week, we heard a lot of evidence and very innovative uh, discussions of approaches that allow for more direct access uh, for patients to talk about their symptoms with a member of the healthcare team, and this will prevent uh, really serious problems, will hopefully reduce the need for urgent visits or emergency room visits. So perhaps it's something as simple as involving a physical therapist if there are some problems with balance or problems walking. Perhaps it's just getting good advice on how to use anti-nausea medications after having had a treatment. So managing side effects of treatment, being informed, and being very clear and having access to members of the healthcare team maybe the best advice I can give you. And this brings us finally to what to do when cancer treatment is over. Uh, we are very um, keen these days on making sure that patients, again, um, know all the information they need to know to move on. So a treatment summary or a survivor care plan is a document that summarizes the treatment that was delivered and also what steps need to be taken in the future to keep you safe, to make sure that you get the right kind of testing, not too much, not too little, but just what's considered appropriate for that particular disease or disease stage. And this is a way also of carrying something 
from the cancer team back to the primary care clinician. And uh, Dr. Fleischman alluded to the fact that these days, unfortunately, a lot of our healthcare system is quite fragmented. So as we think about putting together a great team to treat the cancer, it's also important to expend some energy and thought to think about how you this care will then be coordinated even when the active cancer treatment has been completed. So I'm going to turn it over now to Dr. Mesner, and I'd be happy to take questions at the end. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Shapira. As always, this is just a wonderful, outstanding presentation and covering a lot of very important issues that people really struggle with. So I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Sarah, Sarah Kerr. Dr. Kerr is consultant, Divisions of Anatomic Pathology and Laboratory Genetics, Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, Assistant Professor of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Kerr is a pathologist, and she's going to address the role of the pathologist, pathology and laboratory reports, how to get a copy of the reports, and when to seek a second opinion. And I must say that Dr. Kerr is actually, um, she has been for a while now our only pathologist, and she's helping us to find more pathologists to be on our calls because they play such an important role. So it's my pleasure now to turn this panel over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kerr. Hello. Thank you so much for inviting me, Dr. Mesner. Uh, my job for the next few minutes is to explain what a pathologist does for your care. I'm biased by being a pathologist myself, but I want to emphasize that pathologists play an absolutely critical role in your cancer care team. Uh, so let me start by talking about what a pathologist does in general. Um, many of you may be more familiar with what pathologists uh, do on TV that are involved in forensic pathology or autopsy pathology, specifically in the setting of criminal investigations. Now, autopsy is an important part of a pathologist's training, but few of us actually practice medicine in the setting that you see on the popular crime shows. On the contrary, most pathologists go to medical school just like your other doctors, but then choose to receive specialized residency and subspecialty training in clinical laboratory testing. This is not research, but clinical testing that occurs in a clinical laboratory associated with your doctor's office or hospital. This specialized training in clinical laboratory testing lasts a minimum of three years and can run as long as seven or more years. After this training, a pathologist typically oversees a variety of tests done in the clinical laboratory. This can be anything from routine blood tests, to examining small tissue biopsies and body fluids, to sectioning and examining large, amount, large amounts of tissue from a cancer surgery. This is why your pathologist is so important to your cancer care. There are studies that have found that up to 80% of clinical decisions are based on laboratory test results, including pathology reports. As Dr. Fleischman mentioned, your cancer doctors often interact with pathologists over the phone and at multidisciplinary tumor boards to discuss your diagnosis and situation. So oncologists, surgeons, radiologists, and pathologists review your case together uh, to put uh, together a recommendation for your care. There are a number of steps that go into making a diagnostic pathology report. The pathologist may first either perform a fineal aspiration, which is a 
small uh, needle aspiration of a tumor themselves, or they may assist another doctor in performing the biopsy to ensure that adequate material is obtained for diagnosis and any additional tests that are needed. During a more extensive surgical procedure, the pathologist helps the surgeon by examining the tissue removed during the operation to give the surgeon an idea about the diagnosis and also to examine what are called margins or the edges of the specimen to see if the tumor has been completely removed. For extensive examination of surgical tissue, um, when that's done to make a precise diagnosis and record staging parameters, um, that's done to define, sorry, what's called a stage. And if you hear that term, a stage defines the extent of the spread of a tumor in a, in a standard way that we can record uh, and, and predict outcomes. The um, gross examination of the tissue, or um, what you might call a naked eye inspection, includes measurements of uh, and weight, color, and other characteristics um, that need to be documented in a pathology report. Um, and then finer examination of the tissue is typically done by preparing thin sections onto glass slides and then adding specialized stains or ink to visualize the tissue under a microscope. A lot of information can be gained from the simple examination of the microscopic tumor appearance, but sometimes other types of stains and molecular tests are needed to make a diagnosis. A pathologist prepares a final pathology report that includes the gross examination, results of tests, microscopic description if necessary, and a final diagnosis, as well as any other comments that may be helpful to explain unusual features of the case. Uh, as Dr. Fleischman, I think, alluded to, it is important to know that you can get a copy of your medical records, including a pathology report, to read yourself. The pathology report, um, fortunately or unfortunately, might seem like it is written in a foreign language at first due to some of the specialized terms that we use. And so I really strongly recommend uh, going over your pathology report with your cancer doctors or nurse practitioner or, uh, say, a physician assistant to make sure that you understand the diagnosis and how it affects your care. In some cases where the diagnosis is unusual or complex, you may also want to talk to the pathologist about your report. I always recommend first talking to the doctors who know you personally, though, um, but they can help you get in touch with your pathologist if, if needed and if it would be helpful to you. I do occasionally talk to patients about their reports. There are also uh, some online resources for patients to help understand pathology reports because they are uh, sometimes difficult to understand. I recommend a new resource uh, from the College of American Pathologists, and it's a website called yourpathologist.org. And you can check that out uh, on the website, yourpathologist.org, Y-O-U-R-P-A-T-H-O-L-O-G-I-S-T.org. And I think Carolyn can also share that with you uh, after the conference. And then uh, finally, the last topic, uh, because I often get a lot of questions about second opinions, I want to talk uh, about the role of a pathologist in second opinions for cancer care. Unfortunately, even with extensive training and certification, 
a pathologist's ability to classify a tumor under a microscope is not entirely perfect. Uh, in difficult situations, difficult cases, we show the tissue to other pathologist colleagues or even might send the slides in the mail to a world, world expert on the topic to determine uh, what the most appropriate diagnosis is for the tumor. Just like other cancer doctors might disagree about the best treatment for a cancer, pathologists also can sometimes disagree on a tumor diagnosis. And this difference can have a big impact on what treatment is recommended. So I encourage you to talk with your cancer doctors about second opinions in pathology in particular, as they often have a very good sense of when a second opinion on diagnosis may be helpful in their recommendations to you. A large part of a pathologist's practice at an academic center, for example, is looking at second opinion cases for other pathologists and oncologists. And uh, your doctor, to make this happen, basically asks for your pathology material to be sent in the mail to another center for an opinion when appropriate. Uh, so with that, I hope I've given you a good explanation of what pathologists do and what pathology reports are about. Uh, thank you very much. Oh, well, thank you very much, Dr. Kerr. That was, again, outstanding and, and really uh, often people don't understand really what the pathologist does and how important they are. And I think you really answered a lot of questions for people and really made it much clearer to everybody um, and also the accessibility of a pathologist, which many people don't realize that they can actually talk to the pathologist. So thank you. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Um, and our next speaker is a Dr. Aaron Kent. Um, Dr. Kent is an epidemiologist and program director, outcomes research branch, health delivery research program, division of cancer control and population sciences, the National Cancer Institute. And Dr. Kent is going to address how a cancer diagnosis affects family, partners, and loved ones, the role of informal caregivers, a very important term that, that um, has been coined, uh, I often feel, by Dr. Kent, but uh, she tells me it's been coined by other people, but Dr. Kent talks about it a great deal, so we feel that she is an important person to sp spread the message about informal caregivers, which many of you are on the call today, the importance of self-advocacy and self-care tips. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Kent. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. It's really an honor um, to be included on today's um, teleconference and to be speaking today with you all on this important topic of getting the best care that you can. And, and just to follow up on what Dr. Mesner said, um, I first want to indicate that I am both a researcher and a health science administrator at the National Cancer Institute, and much of my work has focused on cancer patient outcomes, including quality of life, the impact that cancer has had on families and cancer caregiving. I am not, however, a clinician, and so I do not have the experience in providing direct medical or psychosocial care. My role today is to tell you about what research tells us about being an informal or family caregiver for someone with cancer and the other topics that Dr. Mesner mentioned. I also want to highlight a recent patient survey led by um, Cancer Care that found that the impact that cancer, have, that cancer can have on family was the number one concern of cancer patients, um, which might resonate with many of you on the call today. And that indicates how critically important it is that we pay attention to cancer patients' families in addition to patients themselves. 
So informal or family caregivers are people who help individuals with cancer meet their day-to-day -day needs, what we often refer to as activities of daily living. Caregivers may be spouses, partners, children, relatives, friends, neighborhoods, or coworkers. They may originate from families of origin or families of choice. And the tasks that they may help with may be many and varied, so including things not only like helping prepare meals, go to the grocery store, housekeeping, but also more fundamental activities such as bathing and, and eating. They can also include what we call medical or nursing tasks, like administering medication, changing bandages, and helping with things like uh, managing infusion ports and catheters. Caregivers can also help by accompanying their loved ones to medical appointments, communicating and coordinating with healthcare providers, and sometimes advocating for services on the part of their um, loved ones. So it is difficult to estimate exactly how many people are serving in this role at a given time in our country, especially um, so at any given point in time. Um, but the National Cancer, a National Alliance for Caregiving, excuse me, it conducts a survey of caregivers nationwide once about every five years. And their most recent estimate from a report published in 2015 is that approximately 43.5 million adults are currently serving as a caregiver for a loved one with a serious medical condition. Now, of those, about 2.8 million reported serving as a caregiver for someone with cancer. So these estimates are going to vary, but it is safe to say that there are thousands of people out there right now who fit that role and thousands more to come. Rosalind Carter, former First Lady and Caregiving Champion, has been quoted as saying, there are only four kinds of people in the world, those who have been caregivers, those who are currently caregivers, those who will be caregivers, and those who will need a caregiver. So we've learned from research that there can be benefit finding or positive aspects of being a caregiver, certainly from um, personal experience as well. A study by Dr. Young-Mi Kim from the University of Miami at Coral Gables identified domains of benefit finding among cancer caregivers specifically. So these can include but are not limited to acceptance or helping to take things as they come, empathy, um, awareness and concern for other human beings, appreciation, so more awareness of the love and support from other people, family, the closeness that comes from bringing family together around a shared goal, positive self-view, helping to become a stronger person and cope more effectively, and reprioritization, or helping to identify true friends and a deeper sense of purpose. All of these positive aspects can come out of caregiving for a loved one with cancer. At the same time, we also know that there are many challenges, challenging aspects to being a caregiver, particularly for those um, who are caregiving for um, a larger number of hours, say 20 hours a week or more. A recent cancer-specific analysis of the National Alliance for Caregiving 2015 study found that cancer caregivers on average spend over 32 hours per week providing care, which is more than those whose care recipients reported, um, reported caregiving for, uh, for care recipients that had other problems other than cancer. Cancer caregiving tends to be more sort of episodic um, and intense than caregiving for those uh, for recipients with other health conditions. Cancer caregivers more often help with activities of daily living than other kinds of caregivers. But despite this involvement, many cancer caregivers have not had the, the important conversations with doctors, nurses, and other care providers about their needs. And the same study reported that just over half had discussed their loved one's care needs with the provider, while less than a third discussed their own self-care needs.
In addition, about 40% reported performing complex medical or nursing tasks without prior training or preparation. And in the same study, about half of cancer caregivers reported feeling high levels of emotional stress and about a quarter reported financial strains. Other studies have shown that cancer caregivers can face sleep disturbances and poor psychological outcomes like depression and anxiety. Caregivers often neglect their own self-care needs and service of caring for their loved ones, and they may not be asked enough about their own health needs. And this is a critical area for both research, development, and a needed cultural change in clinical practice. So I know these findings may sound pretty negative, but I'm providing them to you to help normalize any feelings that as caregivers you may have about the stress of caregiving. It's not necessarily stressful or positive, it's often both, sometimes at the same time, sometimes at different times. It is normal to feel like it is hard and it is important to reach out for help. Social support is critical. Support should be thought about in a, a multi-dimensional way along the lines of both instrumental support, so things like helping um, get meals prepared, providing transportation to appointments, help with childcare, and it can also mean emotional support. So someone providing a listening ear, companionship, and affection. Both these kinds of emotional support, so both instrumental and emotional, are important and can benefit both caregivers and patients. In fact, in situations where there's a network of carers, with the patient at the center, the primary caregiver or caregivers next, and then secondary cares, carers to follow can be the most advantageous. Respite care programs, which allow or can allow caregivers a break by providing paid caregiving services, um, either during certain hours of the day or for days at a time, can also provide caregivers some relief, although these services are often underused. Caregivers are often people who take on many tasks, but it's very important to preserve energy, and this speaks to both self-care and self-advocacy. It is not uncommon for caregivers to try to take on the role of moving through and doing what needs to be done, and these approaches have um, been looked at in particular among male caregivers of women with breast cancer. Um, guilt is also an emotion that some caregivers face. The problem is, however, that a lack of engagement and appraisal of one's own feelings can lead many caregivers to experience um, lower quality of life, or what is sometimes termed suffering in silence. For some people, spirituality, faith, and religious practice can help patients and caregivers cope with cancer. For many, fostering feelings of hope and managing feelings of guilt can be very helpful. And for others, prioritizing sleep, exercise, and healthy eating can be critically important to coping with the stresses of caregiving. Meditation and other kinds of mindfulness practices can also help one to acknowledge feelings as they come. In addition, there have been many formal interventions developed by healthcare professionals, or I should say delivered by healthcare professionals, but developed to support caregivers and patients cope with cancer together. And these interventions are generally divided into three categories. Those are what we term psychoeducational, or those designed to help educate caregivers about how to help their loved ones through uh, symptom management, skills training, which are designed to promote better coping skills, and, and then third, therapeutic counseling interventions. There are some that have significantly a reduced burden and increased confidence to take on the role of caregiving and improve quality of life. The more successful interventions are generally longer in duration, 
and increasingly more interventions are being developed that can be delivered at a distance, so either over the phone or on the web. And these are showing promising results for many caregivers and their um, care recipients. A few other important tips to consider for caregivers specifically. Um, if, a, if you are a caregiver and you wish to speak to your loved one's healthcare team directly, you will often need to get written permission from him or her given the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA, which governs how patients control and release their health information. In addition, the Family Medical Leave Act, um, abbreviated FMLA, requires that most employers, so that would be uh, generally companies with 50 or more employees, grant their employees up to 12 weeks of unpaid but job-protected leave per year for family members to, who need time to care for a spouse, parent, or child. Please consider speaking with your employer to learn about unpaid time off if this situation applies to you and is of interest to you. So in closing, I want to stress that there is help for caregivers out there from many sources um, and for caregivers who are caring for patients with cancer specifically. The National Cancer Institute has a guide on our website called Family Caregivers and Cancer, and other organizations, including Cancer Care, have developed additional materials to provide resources and tips to manage the stresses of caregiving. I also just want to mention that there is recently enacted state-based legislation developed and sponsored by the American Association of Retired Persons, or AARP, called the CARE Act, and that actually is an, an acronym that stands for Caregiver, so that's the C, Advise, that's the A, Record, R, and Enable, E, Act. So Caregiver, Advise, Record, Enable, Act. And there are three parts of the Act aimed at supporting patients who are hospitalized and their caregivers. The record part simply requires that there be an assessment of whether there is a caregiver, and if there is, that that person's name and contact information be recorded upon admission. Secondly, the advised part of the act states that, that that caregiver is to be advised prior to the patient's discharge. And thirdly, and probably most importantly, the enable part indicates that caregivers be involved in discharge planning to prepare both the patient and caregiver transition to for transition to home. And as of right now, I'm pleased to report that 32 states have either introduced or passed legislation enacting the CARE Act. Thank you for listening. Um, I'm happy to provide further resources or answer questions at the end of this teleconference. And with that, I'll hand it back over to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kent. That was really um, excellent and really um, covering a lot of areas and I think very helpful to all of the caregivers and everyone on the call today, this information. So thank you so much. And I, I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And um, our next speaker is uh, Ms. Sarah Kelly. Ms. Kelly is an oncology social worker, and she is our program coordinator um, at Cancer Care. And Ms. Kelly is going to be addressing coping with the practical, social, and emotional challenges of cancer, Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services, and the role of support groups. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to Ms. Ms. Kelly. Thank you, Dr. Messner. And as Dr. Messner said, I am an oncology social worker here at Cancer Care, and I work with many people who are diagnosed with cancer and their loved ones. So in talking about the practical, social, and emotional uh, challenges of a cancer diagnosis, you know, I could spend a whole hour just talking about this, but I'm, I'm going to narrow it down to a few things. I think one of the things that really struck me uh, listening to my other colleagues on this call is just how complex 
the uh, the current healthcare system can be. You know, as Dr. Fleischman and others said, when you're diagnosed and getting care, you're interacting with an, any number of physicians, nurses, social workers, medical assistants, and other trained professionals. You know, not to mention insurance companies and billing offices. And this is across multiple settings. In addition to the the healthcare system um, being complex, life is also complex. You know, you're diagnosed with a cancer but you're not your cancer. You have a life that may involve work, family, friends, and other activities and responsibilities. Navigating all of this can be really challenging. And so I'd kind of like to go back to what Dr. Shapira introduced, which is you, um, really talking about you and bringing kind of the focus back to yourself. So I think first and foremost, when you're dealing with any of this, navigating any of this, check in with yourself. And by that, I mean just take a moment, step back, and ask yourself, okay, well, how am I feeling right now in this moment? Am I stressed? And how am I feeling it? Is it physical? Is it emotional? You know, our bodies respond to physical and emotional stress by releasing hormones um, that increase our blood pressure and speed our heart rate and raise blood sugar levels, and this has a, a definite impact on our bodies. So listen to your body. It's going to help you know where you are. And you can help your body regulate, um, you know, in terms of reducing uh, some of the stress. And, you know, you can do that with exercising, um, getting adequate sleep, uh, making sure you're paying attention to your diet, social activities, engaging in different activities that you enjoy. I know Dr. Kent talked about uh, mindfulness and meditation also as a way of doing that. So just engaging in some of those activities to reduce your stress. A really quick thing you can do if you're doing a check-in with yourself and you find that you are really stressed out, is just take a step back and breathe. You know, that's probably one of the best things you can do uh, for yourself in those situations. I also um, want to stress being aware of your limits. And that really means allowing yourself to say no when people ask you to take on tasks that you don't really have time or energy to complete um, because of treatment and fatigue and all the side effects that come along with it. Um, So giving yourself permission to say, you know, I'd really like to help with that, but I'm not able to right now. Uh, Next would be getting organized. And this one I know is not the easiest, Um, but using a calendar, creating a list of tasks, really breaking things down to make it more manageable, you know, really taking things one piece at a time and concentrating your efforts on things you can control. And this is a big one. You know, um, for instance, traffic is something that's often uh, out of control. And I hear so many times from patients and caregivers that, you know, they're late for an appointment and they're really stressed out and they're stuck in this traffic. You know, that's not something that you can necessarily control, but you can control how you go through it and where your stress is with that. Um, If you can remain a little flexible, um, it can help keep the stress low. And sometimes, again, the only aspect of a problem you can control is how you react to it. Uh, Asking for help is the next piece that I wanted to talk about. And I'm going to talk about this more in depth in a minute. Um, But asking family, friends, or other health professionals for help is a sign of strength. I cannot stress this enough. Um, whether the support is for a specific task, like you know meals or errands, or for um, more emotional support, you know through counseling or groups, it really helps to alleviate some of the stress and give you um, that extra support you need going through this and navigating all of that. 
And then getting help with financial problems. Um, the financial piece of this can be really, really stressful and uh, a lot to navigate. So asking an oncology social worker or a patient navigator, even a financial advisor who's familiar with cancer for advice on dealing with the cancer-related insurance and financial matters, don't wait to seek financial help. Um, you know, I always stress that, that you know, as soon as you're going into this, you know, find out what you can about the cost and your financial situation and some ways of navigating it. And then I do uh, just kind of going back a little bit to the asking for help. So we just talked about uh, caregivers. And a question I get all the time, well, uh, you know, who is a caregiver? And I don't know if I have one or someone will say, I don't know if I am one. Um, a caregiver really is a member of, it could be your biological family, your chosen family, it could be a spouse, a partner, friend, neighbor, coworker, really anyone who provides uh, or helps manage care. And um, for the person with cancer, sometimes choosing caregivers is a clear choice, like you know, okay, I've got my partner here, that's my caregiver. For others, it may be more challenging. And for those who don't have people in their lives who are able to provide the care, speak up. Um, you know, this can be difficult. I think there can be a feeling of shame sometimes. Um, but know that there are a lot of reasons you may not have a caregiver and you're not alone in it. Um, you know, anything from unhealthy family relationships, friends and family who are also diagnosed or coping with their own health issues, um, and, you know, friends or family that live far away from you, there are, you know, a lot of reasons you may not have someone right there. Let the care team know so that the supports can be put in place for you. You know, you can also check with community organizations, religious uh, organizations for information on volunteer, respite care, um, but just know that that's it's such an important piece of this, that you don't have to go through this alone. And I'd also now like to um, shift gears just a little bit and talk about cancer care on how we can help and be a part of this support network also. So just a little about us. We're a national nonprofit organization. We provide free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Our programs include individual counseling. We do that face-to-face -face in New York and then over the phone nationally. We have support groups, which we do face-to-face -face in New York, over the phone nationally, and online nationally and internationally. We have education programs like the one we're on today. We can help provide practical assistance and help how to navigate the healthcare system. And also we provide some limited financial assistance. All our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers and they're completely free of charge. And an oncology social worker really is trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person in his or her support network. We're also trained to help cancer patients and their supports tackle the problems that accompany the disease. So some of the things I talked about before, the financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and then of course the psychological impact of all of this. And I, you know, I find adjusting to finding different ways of coping with your diagnosis is an important part of the healing process and I actually consider it to be part of treatment. And so again, you know, asking for help by joining a support group, contacting a social worker, reaching out uh, is a huge sign of strength. I cannot stress enough, you don't have to do this alone. Support group, you're connecting with others who are going through a similar situation. Individual counseling, you have a space that's just yours to voice any of the concerns that are coming up. And the connections can help lessen the isolation. 
um, that comes with a cancer diagnosis. I think feeling well emotionally can help you better deal with the diagnosis and, and get through the treatments. So at this time, we offer a number of online support groups, telephone support groups, and also in-person support groups uh, in the New York City area. If you are interested in any of our services, contact us. You can reach us on our HOPE line, which is 1-800-813-HOPE, and that's 1-800-813-4673. You can also visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Our website is very comprehensive. You'll find a lot of information, not only on our support services, but on all of our programs, as well as on your diagnosis and treatment and coping as you go through this. You know, we've got a lot of information today. It's a lot of information to digest and get our arms around. We're here to help you understand what it means for you and your loved ones. And I'd just like to leave you uh, with not being alone. You're not alone in this. Our services are here to help you. Thanks so much for your attention and the opportunity to talk today. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Kelly. That was really outstanding. Thank you so much. And now we have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions. And I'm going to ask Candace to explain to everybody how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, Candace? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star and then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And we have a question for Dr. Kent, actually. Um, Dr. Kent, the question is, where can I find more information on the CARE Act? If you could just address that one. Sure. Th- uh, thank you, Dr. Messner. So, um, so uh, most of the information that's out there is provided directly from the American Association of Retired Persons, or AARP. Um, so perhaps the easiest thing to do is to... Um, you know, open up our web browser and type in um, AARP Caregiver Advise Record Enable Act or CARE Act. I will say that most of the information provided on the site is based a state by state because each state has um, implemented a new plan for, for enacting the CARE Act. Excellent. And we actually have sent an announcement to all of you who are listening to the program online about um, the uh, website to visit, and we'll be sending that to everybody on the call so you'll have that information as well. That's fantastic. Thank you, Dr. Kent, for bringing that up and letting everybody know about it. It's important. Thank you. Um, And um, so a, a question now for Dr. Shapira. Um, and this question is, what should I do if I am unable to receive treatment at a cancer center of excellence or at an NCI-designated center? This is a general question. If you could address this in a general way, Dr. Um, Shapira, and I think probably will help all everyone, many on the call who have a similar question to that. So, Dr. Mesner, you may need to help me answer the question. I think this is a question of access. So if somebody uh, perhaps... Uh, um, aspires to be treated at a large cancer center, but for reasons of access, it could be distance, could be transportation, could be insurance, just somehow cannot do that, what would you suggest? Well, that's that's a good point. And so it, it's true that sometimes, sometimes um, we at Cancer Care can assist people, and our oncology social work staff can help with that um, in terms of the cost of transportation, 
or actually finding a center that's even near you. Sometimes people will call us and say, where is my closest center? And sometimes people don't realize that there may be a center of excellence near them, maybe a satellite version of it, they're not aware of it. I'm going to ask Sarah Kelly to say a few more words about that as well, because I know she deals with this every day with many of the people who call our Hope Line. Ms. Kelly? Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the, the first things to do is to have the, the patient or caregiver first check in to see what's close to them or closer to them. You know, if they're really not aware of what's around them, the National Cancer Institute can share with them if they call on their Hope Line or go online. Um, some of the centers that may be closer to them. Uh, And then it's getting them, again, I know Dr. Shapiro talked about access, getting them access. So is there help for transportation? Uh, Is there help for lodging if it's far away? So getting them connected to some of those resources if a person is just not able um, to get there. It's just too far or maybe because of what's happening for them, they're not able to travel, whatever it is. Um, finding the doctor in their area who uh, may be an expert. They may not you know, be working at a, a quote-unquote center of excellence. It may be a local hospital. That doesn't mean that they, they're not an expert in their field. Um, so talking with them and seeing if, if they can collaborate with um, possibly some other doctors at the centers of excellence. Um, but, you know, finding out for the doctors who are there locally, you know, asking them questions like, how many cases of this do you see a year? You know, how long have you been practicing? You know, what is your experience in this area uh, to help you understand, you know, where they are and if they think that there's another person in your area that you can see. So, so those are some of the things that you can do. That's excellent. And indeed, sometimes people also will consider contacting a center of excellence that's nearby, even if they can't go there, and also talking with their own physician about even just consulting with with them if there's something very specific about the need to. And we also recognize that many people are treated at not major cancer centers. And so so I think many of the things that Ms. Kelly suggested are important. And I guess, Dr. Shapiro, is there anything you would suggest if you're seeing a physician who's local but actually is providing you the care you need are there questions that one might want to ask or in addition to what Ms. Kelly has identified that would be useful in terms of just, um, you know, helping to be sure that everything is being accessed and possible, as possible for them? It's a, it's a difficult question. It's hard to generalize. In some cases, there's really an urgency to treat and in other cases, not. So if there is urgency, then, you know, there there may be less time to consult and set things up, but let's assume there is time, then I think that all of the things that were mentioned are helpful. American Society of Clinical Oncology also has a feature that allows them to help you find the right specialist. So using the power of the large societies and NCI to try to get to uh, folks who have expertise, and if not, uh, trying to find somebody who's really trusted and collaborative. It could be primary care, could be a local oncologist who's willing to set up this collaboration, which may require exchanging information. Now, this isn't easy to do, and uh, most uh, most of the time, uh, you know, doctors don't want to give informal opinions because they're afraid of doing so because they may not have access to all the information about the patient. So it depends on the situation. If there's a good standard treatment and there's a capable 
treatment team that can carry it out, that's fine. If it's a rare cancer or a situation where you may be looking for access to an experimental treatment or that's only available through a clinical trial, then it becomes a little bit harder because really the patient needs to go to the center where that treatment is offered. Excellent. So we definitely would recommend that you would contact Cancer Care, our helpline at 1-800-813-4673, and really talk with one of our social workers further about your particular situation, all the details, and we can walk you through help and with any additional help and suggestions with, with that excellent question. Now we have another question, and this question is for Dr. Kerr. Um, how long should I keep copies of my lab reports? So, hmm. Well... Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, it's I, I think for especially if you're going to be switching between centers, say that you had a history of a particular cancer and then you're going somewhere for an opinion on a new diagnosis, I think it's important to make sure that you at least have access to the records that might have been, you know, even 10 or 15 years ago because it can be very important to your current issue. So, for for example... Um, sometimes I'm looking at, uh, you know, a current biopsy, and it would be really helpful to know exactly uh, what the pathology was reported even 10 or 15 years ago. And so I think at least having access to that detailed report um, can be useful in your future care. So I think especially for pathology reports, it, it might be important to, you know, keep them at least access to them indefinitely. Excellent. Well, I have to say, um, I really want to thank all of our speakers on today's call. This was an extraordinary call, and I realize that we actually, um, there are many more questions that we are not getting to, so I want to actually give you information about how to get your questions answered. For those of you who have further medical questions or medically related questions, we always recommend that you call the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237. Um, and they have information specialists who would be happy to answer your questions. And they also have a live chat feature for both our people in the U.S. and internationally who would like to actually contact their um, their website at www.cancer.gov. And you can post your question. In a live, they have a live chat feature, and you can then get your questions answered. That's really important. And for those of you who have questions that you more having to do with contacting one of our oncology social workers here at Cancer Care, whether it be with access issues, transportation, or cost of care, financial assistance, please do contact um, our oncology social workers. If you also would like to get some counseling services, join a support group, either a telephone or online support groups, and online support groups are available to people all over the country and internationally as well. And our telephone groups are also equally um, accessible. Um, It really just depends on where the person is in terms of the time zone. But the online groups are great because they're not time sensitive and so that you can participate um, on those groups um, as well. You can simply contact Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Um, and also, I just want to thank our, our outstanding speakers and also all of you who have asked such really great questions. And I know many of you have further questions. And you also, if you wish, you can contact us afterwards for your questions as well. Um, now, this was part four of a five-part series. And so part five is t- 
titles for caregivers, care coordination for your loved one living with cancer and other health problems. And that program will take place on June 14th. Many of you have signed up for the entire series. But if you hadn't been aware of it, I just wanted to remind you again about this. And I just want to thank all of you for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes today's workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.